And of course, let's not forget that we don't just want to get back to where we were. We actually need to go a step further. And this is where the insurance model doesn't necessarily work because your cyber insurance is to get you back to where you were. It isn't about covering any improvement costs to prevent you going there again. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is Alan Jenkins, Managing Partner from Decipher Cyber Consulting Partners, also known as DCCP. Alan, thanks for joining. Thank you, Carissa, and uh, good evening to you and listeners. It's a morning where I am. So, Alan, I want to start firstly with your experience. Now, uh, Tinez Trier is your, I guess, your other partner in your business, your other managing partner, and he speaks quite highly of you. And he always seems to bring up that you do have over 30 years of experience in this space, which is admirable. So I want to start there because you made a comment when we, when we spoke a few weeks back saying we haven't helped ourselves in security. Now, you've obviously got a long tenure in the space. You've seen a lot of things. You've, you've done a lot of things. But I'm curious to know, what do you mean by this? And are we helping ourselves now? So let me answer that last question first. I think we still have a way to go. And, and we're, what I'm referring to here is I don't think we've helped ourselves in our relations with either business or the wider public um, because we've tended to attack and I'm focusing on the cyber cyber security rather than the broader um, sense of security, which I've been in for, for all of my career. Um, and what I'm getting at in terms of how we haven't helped ourselves is we lapse into jargon, both technical and acronym, all too quickly. We don't keep our dialogue simple. And we don't talk about the benefits. We don't talk about the opportunities and nearly as much as we talk about the risks and the downsides. So our, our tone, if you will, tends to be negative, and that doesn't help people because people want to be optimistic in, on, in the whole because it makes living in this turmoil that we're in um, easier as if people think there, is a, that there are good things ahead rather than bad things ahead. So psychologically, we don't set the conversation up in the right way. And then when we get to content, we go too much into technical jargon and acronyms and we just lose people. Yeah, good observation. I totally agree. One thing that's interesting is you said we lapse into talking about jargon and speaking and technical speak. Why do you think that's the case? If we're aware of it, uh, why do we keep doing it though? Some of it, I think, is our comfort zone. Um, yeah, most, most, and forgive me if I start switching the words, but most or at least many of us in the cyberspace come from the technical work stream, you know, the bits and bytes, the digital, the coding element. Well, 99% of the population doesn't. So we've got an immediate language switch that we need to do, and that's not necessarily easy to do if in the, your day-to-day -day interactions with your colleagues, you're talking technicals. Um, and then, and again, I'm not the psychologist here, but there are there are some studies emerging, and definitely some commentary from 
uh, the likes of Jess Barker, Dr. Jess Barker, and others about the mindset, the profiles, if you will, of, of the people on the defending side in cyber, as well as the attacking side in cyber. And they're not in the same space as most folks. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of introverts in cyber as opposed to extroverts, and that affects the way we communicate as well. But I'm not the expert on that topic. Do you think it's gotten better over time? Like you sort of said before, you answered my second question first. But I mean, I was at conferences for the last couple of weeks, and it, the same sort of conversation does seem to come up. And I mean, you're obviously in the UK and I'm in Australia. So it's obviously quite a inherent global problem, but it, it still seems to be the focus. What people often say, "Oh, we're speaking technical." We sort of, you know, have the same conversation yet. There are two aspects to that. Forgive me. I think there's one in terms of because it is a long-standing issue, it's a it's a safe topic to get to, and to some extent, it also reaffirms my earlier point about we tend to be negative in our outlook. Because I've certainly seen it change. You know, forgive me, I've, I've, I've been in security for over 30 years. I started my career in the Royal Air Force, served for 21 years, um, joined, joined the commercial sector or Sydney Street, as I think of it, in 2006. Uh, and I've had a variety of roles, both sides or all sides of the conversation, from end customer to supplier to consultant, bridging the gap. And that's what I do, tend to do these days. But because of that, my dialogue has changed as my roles have changed. So you know, for, for, forgive me if I talk about seniority here, but as I've become more senior in terms of what I do, both in terms of experience, but also in terms of role, more and more I've had to engage with senior leadership. And to do that, I've had to, I've had to adapt the way I talk when I'm talking to the senior leadership. Uh, and that's what CISOs and, and heads of have to do um, on, on the inside, but certainly as a, as a consultant, I have to do that as well because I could be talking to a small enterprise one minute and a large enterprise the next, and you have to change the language according to your audience. You, know, you will do that as a communicator on podcasts. You know that intimately, but a lot of the cyber folks don't. They have to learn it. And because we've had more people coming into the space, we've got people on different points of, if you'll forgive me, maturity of that learning curve. So whilst I have seen change because I've, I've lived through it, if you will, and I've adapted myself, and I am conscious of that, others have yet to get to that same point. So we have a, we have a spread of approach across the industry so while some people have made that change, others have yet to, and that that is not helping us as well. We don't we don't talk with one voice, but we'd actually have a lot of disparate voices saying slightly different things, not because they necessarily disagree, but because they're at different stages in in, in their learning path. Yeah, you're so true. One of the things that you said, which is interesting, is negative tone. Talk to me a little bit more about that. I do know what you're saying, but I want to sort of open up a little bit more. Yeah, so if you think about it, we talk about always, always we should rightly talk about managing the risk. You know, 100% guaranteed security doesn't exist unless your laptop is turned off, not plugged in and locked away in a laptop in a safe, and even then the safe could be broken into. 
So you know, immediately we're into a slightly negative outlook in terms of we're trying to manage and mitigate the risks that are out there. So immediately, if you will, that's a negative type conversation because you're you're acknowledging the fact that the um, forgive me, I'm going to say bad guys, uh, the the hackers out there, because I shouldn't be um, I should be gender neutral about this because it's not just hackers and not just males, and they're certainly not just young and hoodies as well. Um, so that the hackers um, take advantage of that, um, but to to our language piece, that's a negative view. So one of the things I've been talking about and others for a number of years is talking about our value add, our value proposition. Where where do we add value to the business as opposed to just cost them on the bottom line? Because you know most most internal security teams, if not all, but certainly most, are a cost. They're a drag on the business. You know, they're they're spending money from a budget as opposed to they are earning revenue and therefore profit. So immediately when you think about that, when you're talking to the board who are certainly in the commercial organization, they are entrepreneurs. They're there to make money. They're there to earn revenue. And it's all about the margins. You know, owning a profit and loss account is a significant step in your, in your commercial journey. Most security folks have never done that uh, because they're in the budget space. So again, that affects our language, but it also affects the way we look at things. You know, we're, we're always looking at, you know, as I did this morning, right, what's the breaking news overhead? Who's been hacked? Where's the latest ransomware outlook? That is a very negative way to start your day, but that's our world. That is how we, that's, that's how we, that's how we rock, if you will. That's not what other people are looking to do. You know, they're, they're looking to see, okay, they're checking their stocks and shares. Have my shares gone up? Excellent. Have they gone down? Okay, what am I going to do about it? So, you know, there's a, it, it, it's, I mean, that, that view, if you will, pervades everything that we do, thinking, talking, and writing. And I think we just need to get a bit more positive about what we do because we need to make a difference. We need to make a difference in our businesses, we need to make a difference in our supply chains, we need to make a difference in our customers. But actually, we need to know that we're making a difference for ourselves. Because otherwise, it's a pretty bleak world. And and, and I do think it's a it's a contributory factor to the um to the burnouts that um have have attracted commentary and, and concern over the last couple of years as well. Yeah, great point. So there's a few things in there that I want to sort of explore, but I want to touch on, you mentioned value prop. Now, you have mentioned this before in our previous discussions. Now, the value prop in security, uh, universally, is probably not strong. Uh, and as you say, you said it was sort of due to uh, a di- uh, disproportionate amount of introverts in our space, which you have touched on earlier in the in the interview. So then what would be your advice with your level of experience in the industry? And then I guess, how do we increase our value prop towards security? Now, I know it's going to be, it depends and there's not necessarily a set way or a framework, but I'm just, I'm just curious to know because we often talk about adding value, but how do we add that value? It's not straightforward. I accept that. Um, but we have to try. We have to look for the right the right levers, the right measures, if you will, to demonstrate that. Because, of course, if, you, if you're not measuring it, you, you're not doing it, is, is one of those truisms of business consulting. But if I can just take you back to the value prop stems from the value chain um, uh, model, 
that Professor Michael Porter put together at Harvard University back in the 80s. And it's at the core of certainly uh, many, if not most, MBA programs, uh, certainly in the, in the Western Hemisphere, and I presume in Australia as well. Um, and it's an interesting one. You know, you've got your primary layer and your secondary layer in terms of are you directly uh, contributing to revenue? Are you facing off to customers? Or are you in the support space where you're enabling that to, act, to happen? And the weakness we have in security is security does not feature in that model, despite the fact that quality management and health and safety both do in that secondary supporting line. What's really interesting when you look at it is actually security happens across the board. Because if you don't have security in your production, your manufacturing facility, you don't produce the goods that go out of the door. And there have been, there have been countless examples of that uh, in, uh, in the last couple of years. You know, I'll, I'll go with Honda manufacturing disabled in 2020, I think it was, from a ransomware attack as one example. There are others. Um, I can remember a peer of mine talking about an issue at a bottling plant um, in a large brewing company here in, uh, in, here in Europe, where he was able to monetize the loss of production because of a malware outbreak in the production space that was the equivalent. I know, uh, if I, forgive me if I don't get the number exactly right, but I think the day's lost production equated to 7 million, uh, and I think it was pounds at the time, in terms of lost revenue. So immediately he had an impact for an outage to production, which allowed him to go to the CFO with a business case to say, if you allow me to, say, to spend £500,000 here to mitigate this risk so that we can both um, not eliminate but reduce the chance of it happening again, and if it were to happen, we'll be able to re recover much more quickly, I'll save you £7 million. And at that point, your business case becomes obvious because you're spending to save. So your gain, your value add there is from a £500,000 spend, you've effectively insured six and a half million of your revenue. Is that making sense? Yeah, most definitely. And I think that this is where most people don't get the conversation because that's when a CFO is going to be like, cool, keep talking, Alan, because that's what I want to hear. Yes, we're happy to spend the money, with the intent that we don't then lose the money. And I think that's where the value prop comes down to. But as we've spoken about earlier, it's going to depend on who you're speaking to, the discourse in which you are speaking to someone. So if it's a CFO, it's financial. If it's a CEO, it might be financial and a bit of something else. So I think that this seems to be what most people, in my experience, miss. Yes, because if you, you know, if you think about it, most of what we do is not directly revenue generating. So, so actually, we need to recognize that and therefore recognize that much of our activity is actually about brand protection. It's about revenue protection. You know, whether it's, forgive me, whether it's in the physical sense, you're stopping things getting stolen out of the warehouse that they call shrinkage, which is a hit on your bottom line because that's a cost. But if you then recognize that if you can save, if you can save 10 pounds in the cost space, um, you've actually saved you've actually saved that in your revenue stream because for every £10 of revenue, you've got one, two, or £3 of profit, depending upon your profit margin. But therefore, to recover that £10 loss of the cost end out of the warehouse, 
you've actually got to earn one, two, or three times that at the front end. So the more you can reduce the losses, actually, the greater you improve the margin. And forgive me, I'm, wa- I'm waving my hands here, which doesn't come across in the podcast very well. But, uh, but, but you yeah, there's know, a, there's, a, there's a need here to understand the, the economics, if you will, the cash flow side, because we're never given a blank check. You know, even even the wrong side of an incident when the spending, uh, the wallet tends to open, so to speak, it's still not an open wallet, just spend what you need. There's still a discussion about, okay, what does this get us? Um, does it contain the problem first, the first thing you need to do, or perhaps the first thing you need to do is check you've got a problem, but we're past that. We're now into containing the problem, then we're into recovery, then we're into recovering from the problem. And of course, let's not forget that we don't just want to get back to where we were, we actually need to go a step further. And this is where the insurance model doesn't necessarily work because your cyber insurance is to get you back to where you were. It isn't about covering any improvement costs to prevent you going there again. And forgive me, I'm going to use another buzz phrase here and I'm just conscious of what I'm doing, but the increasing use of resiliency or resilience, I think is a very a very critical one for us because it recognizes that that we're never going to be successful all of the time. But actually, the business doesn't want, doesn't care about how long it's taken us to detect a problem. They're only really interested in how long it takes us to get the lights back on or the production line moving um, or the, the damage limitation in place such that the fines for a breach because there's a data loss gone out there We've got our arms around it, and we know what that's going to be, such that they can make provisions in the financial statements. You know, those are all response sides. They're not detect and prevent. So again, we need to think more about the whole piece, not just the piece in front of us. Um, and that's not necessarily everybody's forte. Yeah, so true. We talk about uh, no one cares how long it took to detect something, but then I guess it rolls reverse. Like uh, bad example, but. You're in security and then you've got an accounts receivable. You're not going to care how long it took someone to get an invoice paid to the company because it's not what you do, right? Like, of course, like if everyone's like, no, you haven't got any money, we can't pay anyone, that's a problem. But until it gets to that point, everyone's like, oh, well, like that's just part of what you have to do. I know it's a bad example, but I think it's sort of the same of, well, no one's going to care until it gets that level of criticality. Look, I, I, I think that is a good point, but where... Yeah, where my eyes and ears were open to it was when I was reporting to a CFO directly. I was sat around the table with, I think there were 14 of us. It wasn't 13. I think there were 14 of us. And 12 of those were FDs, including, sorry, financial directors, including the CIO who was an FD on secondment. The only two who were not were me and the head of procurement. And of course, the head of procurement taught numbers all the time. So effectively, the only one at that point who wasn't talking numbers, I was talking risks, I was talking red, amber, greens, was me. And, and I had to adapt my language because of that audience, but also because I, I recognized what my boss, the CFO, was interested in was numbers. So that's where I shifted to putting value at risk. What is the upside? What is the downside? What do I get for this spend? And that was, I suppose, 2008, forgive me, 14 years ago. And that's where I started to, to 
find out about the value proposition and Porter and all of those things, because I haven't done an MBA. It's actually one of my regrets. Um, in hindsight, I should have done an MBA before I came out of the Air Force uh, at the right age rather than recognizing it too late. But that's because of where I was at the time as opposed to where, I've, where I have got to in terms of my audience change. I moved out of the operational fighting fires that you know, we all go through into that more strategic talking to the business, you know, putting our budget requests together for the next year, talking to the board about what we're doing on a quarterly basis, not just by exception, you know, talking about progress and improvements. Um, obviously, inevitably talking about uh, things that are happening both in the wider world, but also closer to home in terms of incidents. But you have to be, you have to be mindful of the audience and adapt your your language, both your language in terms of tone, but also in terms of content, to reflect what they're interested in. You know, I am still interested in um, you know the level of detection speed, you know, and, and trying to move that needle so that we we reduce the lag time between um, flash to bang to detect. You know, I, I know that's important, but that's an operational metric. That's not a business metric. The business metric is, are we reducing our response times on the whole as a trend over time? Because clearly uh, one incident is not the same as the next, so you can't do a direct comparison. But if you take a step back and you look at the trend, so long as that trend is moving in the right direction, you're doing the right things. And of course, if it doesn't, then you have to start investigating as to why. was What was odd about that incident? What did we not get right? You know, and no, no plan survives contact. So, sorry, that was a military um, slang there. And then, and you know, forgive me, I'm I'm guilty of the same thing using languages. You know, I come from the military world, so I I still find myself as I just did. Hang on, stop. That doesn't necessarily work. Have to do the translation. Um, and you know, and that's 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 the art of communication. Um, and in fact, this this is unusual for me. I haven't done very many podcasts where it's radio. Um, and you know, obviously through the last couple of years, we've been doing it remotely through the screen. <laughs> Doesn't sound that way, Alan. I have a face for radio. So actually this is probably my better, my better medium. Doesn't sound that way. <laughs> but, but sorry, my point here is I'm using my body language, um, because I do, I think that way. And actually I think better on my feet than I do sitting down, um, I've been told a number of times by uh, by my other half, you're going to wear a hole in the carpet because you're walking backwards and forwards. Um, well, but that you know, some of that is because of where I started in the military, where you don't stand in one place, you, you you don't stand out because you might get taken out, so you move. And there's a you know whether you're in a whether you're in a command post or an ops room, um, you can't stay in one place because there are a number of people you've got to talk to. You know, but if you think about, we all sit around a table. Why is that? Well, actually, part of that is because you then take height out of the equation. You know, I have the advantage of being six foot two, but even I look up to some people. But most people are shorter than that. So, and, and particularly as we're trying to attract more talent into the into what we do, make it, if you'll pardon the term, by making it attractive. To some extent, we've got to make it sexier in terms of talk about the value. Uh, talk about the things that we can do, but we've also got to draw harder to find talent into the talent pool. And at this point, I'm not just talking about the gender piece in terms of bringing 
more women into the space. You know, I have seen that improve, but it's still got a long way to go. But we've actually got to bring in neurodiverse talent um, and not just because they're good at analysis, though they are. There is a there is a correlation, um, and the IASME team here in uh, here in the UK have been working this along with others um, in in recent years about taking people who are neurodiverse who otherwise struggle sometimes, well, in fact, often to get into employment because they don't fit the the common way of working in an office, but actually they're really good at analysing data. They're not necessarily data to scientists, but they are good data analysts. And there is a correlation between maths and music. That's that's been known for some time. But you know, the, the likes of Alan Turing and his team at Bletchley back in the late 30s and 40s breaking Enigma, when you look at when you look back at who they were, they were a really diverse talent pool, including uh, females, by the way. Um uh, and the film that the name escapes me at the moment, but with Bernard Cumberbatch and, and, and others is really good. It's a really good depiction. But there were some really odd characters in there, not, obviously not least Turing himself. We need more of that. So yeah, I don't want, and fortunately we don't yet have cloning, so you can't clone me. I want a, I want a team around me who are not yes men and women, but bring their own point of view from their own um their own experiences, their own talents, because then we get the sum of the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And that's what we really need to succeed. And unfortunately, I think the hackers are better at it than us a lot of the time. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think I like your tangents. I love a good tangent. So I think that that's good. <laughs> Sorry, forgive, forgive me for deviating a little. No, no, no. Deviating is always good because you're, you're thinking um, of, you know, off the top of your head or off the cuff or whatever you want to say. So I think that, that I think it's good. And that's that's how we get the organic conversation. That's why I have the show to really get inside people's minds. So I want to, okay, I'll, so we've spoken about the value, but you, you touched on a few things just there, which I'm interested in, which is, are we focusing then on too much, like on the tech side of security rather than what we sort of gain um, or what the business gains from a security perspective. So what I mentioned before, revenue protection, brand protection. So those are the things the business gain if we do security correctly, yes? So then I'm curious to know what there seems to still be this dislodgement, like we're focusing too much on the tech. And, you know, I've, I've interviewed many people on this show and it's like we're not there to just do security, right? We actually are there to support our business. I do I do believe in certain instances this gets lost, perhaps. Yes, we do. And I, and I think, and I'm going to have to define some terms here to explain where I'm coming from. Cyber has, has become a, a commonly used term for what we do, but it's actually not well defined. And there's some, there's some gray area in there that often I exploit, actually, because cyber is not well defined. I take advantage of that. But cyber is, is not the same as IT security. IT security is a subset of cyber, but cyber is a lot more. Um, cyber includes the human element. Cyber includes um, optimizing processes. Um, it is not just about configuring and hardening the technology and the infrastructure uh, or secure coding done right in the, in the middleware stroke app space. Um, cyber encompasses a lot more. 
one of the best ways of thinking about this, and forgive me, is the way the military thinks about this now in terms of cyber is now the fifth domain of warfare. Um, and if you're immediately going, it's the fifth, well, what are the other four? Well, land, sea, and air, and then space are the, are the more conventional, if you will, four domains. Cyber is now the fifth. But cyber is the only one that touches each of the others directly and actually is a, um, an increasingly critical space uh, in, in terms of the way warfare is conducted both offensively and defensively in those other four domains. Um, and actually the <laughs> special military operation, the war that's going on in Ukraine started by Russia is a good example of this. One of the, one of the early things the, the Russians did was to hack the VSAT terminals, the um, uh, satellite terminals that were commonly used in Ukraine to take them out of action such that the passage of information was disrupted between Ukrainians' military, but also its civilian population, so that the Russians had the advantage they could use surprise and, and advance more quickly. Now, fortunately, that, um, that, that was not a winning strategy, but it was definitely a disruptive strategy back in February and March. So we've had some tangible examples now of where cyber is being used in warfare. Um, but that applies equally in the commercial space you know, in terms of why are we suffering so many ransomware attacks? Well, it's because the exploitation has impact across a business, but the means of exploitation, the insertion via an email, via clicking on a link, it's all too, it's all too easy for the hackers to find one poor soul who does click. Perhaps my language is poor there, but with the one poor soul, the unintentional insider who clicks on the link, they didn't mean to open the, the front door or the back door to the hackers, but they're busy. They're, they're, it's one email amongst many. They don't necessarily pick up on the signs that if, we, um, if we've done our security culture piece correctly, that they should pick up on. Um, you know, there's always a human element here, and I'm afraid there are, there are still weaknesses in our human approach. Um, that, that we need to tackle. And if you don't mind, Carissa, I'll come back to that because that's one of the things that I've changed in 25 years. Um, and I'm just mindful I might be losing my thread here. But the, the point about defining cyber as being more than just IT security is it's not all about technology. You have to do the people and process but people don't think of it that way. So part of the problem of our reporting chain of a CISO and, and or the cybersecurity team reporting into the CIO is that you're positioning what we do in that technology stack, and that is not helpful. But businesses, large and small, they can't necessarily adopt the three lines of defense because that's an overhead that they just can't support. So we've got to be a little agile of it or with it. But I'm not a fan of the CISO working into the CIO. I don't think, I don't think it's the right positioning. The, the angle where I think becomes most obvious as to why the cybersecurity isn't just in the in the IT space is the people element. You've got to take your your people, your colleagues, your staff on a journey, but recognizing that security is not what they do for the day job. So we're asking them to be aware, look out for these things when, to your earlier point about the accounts payable team, we're absolutely just focusing on invoices, pay, uh, purchase orders, chasing up the bad debtors. That's their day job. 
But if we don't make them aware, not just aware, but if we don't give them the right tools and um, nudges as to what to look out for when an account is changed and an address is changed, that's why business-enabled fraud happens, because they're not thinking in a security manner. And this, this, I think, is the this is the heart of the problem, and it goes comes back to to some extent in terms of our mindset in security, is is atypical, is abnormal compared to the rest of society. You know, I, I find myself, I find myself managing risk in pretty much everything I do. You know, even today, I'm thinking, right, I'm I'm headed into London later. Um, but actually, it's going to be a long day. I'm going into a conference for the day, but I'm going on to a dinner this evening. As simple as, right, do I take a raincoat with me or do I just rely on an umbrella? But not to have either with me would be unacceptable risk, given the weather forecast and the fact that we're now into autumn. So I'm immediately thinking about what could go wrong as opposed to the sun's going to shine all day because it's shining at the moment. Most people will go for the positive and they'll take the risk. We don't tend to. So, so yeah, I have an umbrella in my backpack even through the summer because we get summer showers. That's not how most people operate. And you know, that's, that's, that's a human characteristic, if you will, that I've become more and more aware of as the years have gone by. So my earlier point about 25 years ago when you know, I was a well, late 20s, actually, station security officer. I was the the head of a 40-strong team, including dog handlers at an Air Force station in the north of Scotland. Probably the best tour, best tour in my military career because it was my team. Uh, we had four squadrons of aircraft, two helicopters, a long way from headquarters and a beautiful part of the world. It was just a brilliant two years. But when I started, I thought it was all about fences, dogs, active security measures counterintelligence work. We were doing some early stuff in computer security. And the security education, which was on the list of things to do, was probably 10th on my list of top 10. Today, it's probably in my top three. And actually, if I think about what I'm trying to do in terms of influencing a customer or a board or an investment team or even a startup, actually, that probably means it's number one because I'm trying to influence to influence them to operate in a more secure way than they would other otherwise do without my influence. Now that's a long way from security education in terms of um, right. What should you do? Um, this is how to do it. Do not do this, which was you know the old traditional way. And I'm and I'm not a great fan of that anymore. But you still got to give. Um, you still got to give guidance. You still got to establish guardrails, but somehow we have to nudge people to do the right thing. You know, people still give their passwords away for for chocolate for the price of chocolate. It's it's uh, it's shocking, but it happens. Why? Because people value the immediate reward of a chocolate, and they don't recognise the consequences of their password. Now, they might do if that password is to their bank account. But they don't recognise that a, 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 a using a common password across all their accounts is a single point of failure. So we have to work with them, and then you get into the so where do I where do I secure that password? Do I write it down? Yes, you could write it down, but 
make sure it's written down in a slightly obscure fashion and not left on a post-it note on the whiteboard in front of your screen. You know, it's, and it's those sort of detail pieces that the majority of people don't consider because it's not the way they think and influencing them to operate in a slightly different fashion than they're, than they're comfortable with is something I spend a lot of time doing. But actually, I'd like to get into the schools to do that because you need to get to, you need to, get to people as young as possible such that it becomes habit rather than requiring their conscious mind to do it. You need to get it into their subconscious. But you know, at that point, I'm, I'm potentially into brainwashing and, and otherwise indoctrinating people. But you know, why do I operate the way I do? That's a damn good question. And, and others have asked that question um, a lot. You know, my father was a chartered accountant. Uh, my mother was effectively a secretary, but she was bilingual French and uh, Spanish as well as English. And unfortunately, that didn't carry over to my brother and I. But interestingly, my brother and I both went into the military. My, my brother went into the army, into military intelligence. I entered into the Air Force. Initially, I wanted to fly. Eyesight got in the way, so I had to find something else to do. I did a degree in electronics and systems engineering, but didn't finish it. Um, and found my way into security, which hadn't been an option for me at 18, but opened up when I got to 21. And by 22, I found myself as a flight commander um, looking after 35, in charge of, nominally, 35 live-armed policemen and subsequently women looking after a third of the Air Force's nuclear weapons. Success was defined by nothing happened. That's where my people skills, if you will, started, um, or certainly in terms of um, a practical effect. And then my, my tour up in Scotland where security education was tense and then working with CFO, it's been an interesting journey. And one of the things um, I've taken to more and more and I will do next week and I will do in November is sharing that experience with the next generations because unfortunately I'm in the old guard these days. Um, I just still don't think of that myself that way, but that's a, that's a realistic um, label. I've got to find a way to transfer my experience and knowledge, both good and bad, to the next generation, because we can't afford for them to take 30 years to get to the same place. We just can't afford that. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I'm on here, is to, is to share that knowledge more widely not because I've got all the right answers, because I've, I've got things wrong over the years, but I've tried very hard not to repeat mistakes. And that's something where we have to be agile, we have to adapt, um, we have to communicate better, not just internally, but externally. We have to share what works as well as what doesn't work. But we've absolutely got to be positive about the difference we can make from doing our day jobs and make it sexy to draw the talent into what we do because um, I'm going to be retiring in the foreseeable future, five to 10 years or so, and the job won't be done. You know, security is about, you know, and again, forgive me, I'm going to finish on a definition here in a sense. Security is about uh, enabling um, people and organizations to operate without fear of interruption. That's almost a textbook definition of security. Yeah, and thousands of years ago, it was about making sure they've got running water, they've got food, uh, and they've got a wall around their homestead or their village or their town. Well, to some extent, we need to be thinking that way in the cyberspace 
but the days of a secure perimeter have gone. You know, I am going to throw that zero trust buzzword in there, more to illustrate that the world has, in, in some senses, actually got riskier as we've become more connected. You know, I, I was talking about the IT security team, but actually we need to be talking about operational technology and securing that. And then I think we've got to get closer to the safety case people because the consequences of getting a, a mass transit system or an airliner or, a, or an elevator wrong for whatever reason, and it's, it could be down to a cyber attack. You know, that starts to affect people's lives. And that's kind of where we're at without getting too um, pessimistic about it, but we've definitely got to get better at operating securely in our connected world. No, really great points. Uh, again, because I think that, I think it's, that's why, that's why I do the show. Like we don't all have the right answers. We've got different experiences, like whether it is 30 years or whether it's three years, like there's still a level of insight that people may have that perhaps, uh, you know, others may miss. I'd like to sort of maybe, um, end on this question because I'm obviously uh, conscious of your time, but how do we sort of encourage people to focus on the value side of security? Have we sort of kept this throughout the conversation, but mate, is there anything that sort of stands out for you um, when I'm asking you this question? Because again, I think that we talk about the value side of security, but then like, what does that mean still? What is the value? The value is about engendering trust. Uh, trust is a slightly um, intrinsic term. It's not necessarily tangible, but it, it affects everything we do. So a, a few years back, um, day one in role as the first group CISO at a FTSE 100 company, I hadn't even finished my onboarding. Uh, and I got told I was chairing a crisis meeting at four o'clock in about two hours because we hadn't cleared the attackers out or they hadn't cleared the attackers out. So we had to get around the table and work out what we were going to do next. And we couldn't play whack-a-mole. We had to do something a little bit, um, no, not a little, a lot more strategic and, and a lot more expensive. Uh, and that was the start of a very fun seven months for me and and my team, not and not just the security team, by the way, uh, we we pulled in the IT team, finance team, and beyond. It became a a real um, collaborative effort across the, mostly the support sides of the business. But I also had to make sure the business leadership was on board. And why was that important? Because they were getting they were getting some bad press, not necessarily in the published press, but certainly in their customer space that wasn't helping the business conversations because the customers were aware that we were in the wrong place um, and it was affecting signing of new business. So keeping the business leadership on board with what we were doing in terms of improvement and where we were going and when we were going to get there was critical to success. And when we got when we got there, when we had the Big Bang weekend and we took out the 21 compromised assets and plugged the new ones in, and we changed our passwords and introduced two-factor authentication and all of those things that we now think of as normal. But I can assure you back in 2013, it wasn't quite so normal, um, and it certainly wasn't cheap. To get that call from the West Country some three, four weeks later that they detected no sign, no indications of compromise, and to be told we were the first defense prime to close our incident ticket 
that was a strategic success, not just for me and my team, but for the business, because it meant the business could then go onto the front foot with their customers and say, yep, we've had a work, lot of work to do. This is where we're at. This is the third party validation. So don't just take my word for it. This is where we're at. And we're going to continue and we're going to maintain the defenses so you can trust us again. And perhaps you should ask some questions of your other suppliers as to whether they're in the same place. And that changed the business conversation from a, um, okay, we're throwing money at security, but we're not quite sure what we're getting into. Ah, we're getting a benefit out of this. And they started to win more business. Now, what effect that had for me was in the course of that was I became aware of, a, as you do from um, the water cooler conversations and such like, that there was a major acquisition in the ocean. Uh, and actually, that acquisition closed about six weeks after we'd recaptured, the, um, uh, recaptured our network and all of those sort of things. But that was coincidental in some senses. Um, but actually, there were two acquisitions that happened in December. One was... Um, uh, the outfit that I worked for had been working with a third party in, in the forensics and, and um, specialized security race. Uh, and my employers um, went and bought that outfit because they decided if we're spending a lot of money with them, we might as well spend money with ourselves. But it also opened a conversation into the major business acquisition where I got into the due diligence team um, and we were able to do an external view of where they were at and realize that they, they had a waterhole um, incident on their website, so they were probably compromised. So actually, we wanted to get in and, and, and do a, um, a compromise assessment of them before the deal was signed. That wasn't allowed. But what, it, what the acquisition team did do was put more money into the contingency pot for the transformation of their business to match what we'd just been through over the previous um, seven months. It turned out that that additional money in contingency wasn't enough, but at least it gave us something to work with in those early days, which we wouldn't have done if I hadn't been talking to the business about what we were doing, why we were doing it, and what we were going to achieve from it. So that, that conversation, that activity, proved the value from security for the first time to those business leaders because they'd only ever thought of it as IT security and in the cost space. Anyway, and, I, and I'm not, um, I've not been able to talk about that as much as I would like to as, at the detail level, um, because to some extent there's embarrassment in there. There's that recognition that you had things in the wrong place and you had to change. But that's now much more common than it was 10 years ago. Um, but that's where my value story, and you can, um, you know, I'm, I'm soapboxing to some extent, that's, that's something we in security need to do more of. We need to talk about our successes and and be more positive in our communication. Yes, you absolutely are right. We need to try to have more positive tones and I get the reason why things do come across negative. I think you've raised really good points around revenue protection as well as brand protection, as well as who we're speaking to get inside the minds of these people to ensure that we are tailoring our language uh, and our uh, words that we use to people as well. It's not just uh, to paint everyone with the same brush. So I'd definitely love to get into another interview to go into some of your other experiences that you've had because 30 years cannot be condensed into, what, 49 minutes. 
or however long we've been speaking so far. So I wanted to thank you, Alan. Thank you for your time and thank you for your insight as well. Because again, like there is not, there isn't an easy answer or an easy way to approach this. But again, that's the whole reason at the show to get people like yourself on to share your thoughts, your experiences and your insights. So thanks very much for your time and I look forward to it again soon. I appreciate it, Carissa. If I've, um, if I've helped the listeners in any way, then I'll put that down as a success. But there isn't one right way to do things. There are lots of wrong ways to do things. Um, and, and we need to share what works and what doesn't work so that others don't repeat mistakes. You know, everybody makes mistakes. But repeating mistakes, not learning from others, that's a cardinal sin. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by MercSec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.